If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them please and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're looking at verse six. As you know, we're in a series of uh, sermons uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount. We've just begun this a few weeks ago, following the idea and the theme of how to live your life according to Jesus. The world has its suggestions and its lurement and its ways, but God's way is much better, much superior and higher than the ways of the world. And so Jesus came to give us life that we might have it more abundantly. And so he teaches us how to live life. And it's found in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapter five, six, and seven. And today we're looking at the fourth of the Beatitudes. And this one has to do with, our, uh, with the righteousness that we are to seek. Matthew chapter five, beginning with verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. Now, very few of us uh, really know what it is to be hungry, to be thirsty. Oh, we may have gone for a meal or two, but we've never really reached the brink of starvation. Uh, we may have had a very hot day some summer when we wished and craved for a cool glass of cold water or a glass of cool lemonade, uh, but we've never really been thirsty, really thirsty, Sometimes uh, if we travel overseas to a country that may not have the same standards of uh, uh, sanitation and so forth as we have, and we are warned that we're not to drink the water, we're not to eat the food because of the sanitation problems. And so when we go for several days without eating the food that we are accustomed to, then we begin to get a little hungry. And uh, we start looking again if we've run out of bottled water for water that is purified. And so, yes, there are a few times when we are a little hungry or a little thirsty. Perhaps you have uh, been faced with surgery, knowing that you were going to go into the operating room and you were given the instructions that you're not to drink water or eat anything until after the surgery. And you lie there uh, on your bed uh, waiting for them to come and get you and you would give almost anything. If you could just have just a little sip of water, you're thirsty. You wish you could have just a little bite of something because you're hungry. Well, we've, st we've stared at children uh, on the television or, or in pictures and magazines that are starving. Uh, we see children whose bellies and stomachs are bloated because they've not had anything to eat and our heart breaks for them. You know, the two most common needs of all people are hunger and thirst. We are unlike each of us are in many, many ways. There are no two people alike. Our fingerprints are all different. My fingerprints are different than yours and yours from mine. There are no two sets of fingerprints the like all over the world. The color of our hair, the color of our skin may be different. Personalities and family backgrounds, education and IQ, uh, weight and height, uh, we all differ to some degree in many, many ways. But all nations, it doesn't matter where they are, the people who live around the world have these two basic things in common with each other. All of us get hungry and all of us get thirsty. 
Time and again, the biblical writers use water and food as symbols of spiritual nourishment. How many of us remember the 23rd Psalm where the psalmist said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down where? In green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. So even the animals know what it is to be hungry and to thirsty and to have the proper food and diet to eat as well as the proper clean water to drink. In Psalm chapter 42 and the first two verses, the psalmist wrote, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? Jesus said of himself that he was the living water that came from heaven and that he was the bread of life that came from heaven. In John chapter 4 and verse 13, uh, he said, Whoever will drink of the water that uh, comes from this well, he said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, If you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give to you, you'll never thirst. For it will be in you a well of water, he said, springing up into everlasting life. In John chapter 7 and verse 38, John recorded Jesus as saying, He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You know, being hungry is a good sign. It means that you have an appetite. When you're sick, you lose your appetite. Sometimes you go into the hospital and they say, well, you're ready to go if you can just start eating something. You kind of lose your appetite when you get sick. Your taste buds kind of change. And yet, when you're sick, you lose your appetite. The people who heard Jesus speak these words, that he was bread and that he was water, were familiar with hunger and thirst. In Palestine, in the time of Jesus, the wage of a worker for one day was eight pence. Wasn't very much money. And if you had a family, how are you going to provide adequately the needs of your family when it comes to food and drink? It was a threat to one's life. The same was true of thirst. In ancient days, people were dependent upon wells and streams and rivers. That's why they located whenever they settled down somewhere close to a river or a stream, or they would dig wells so that they would have a way to get water. People like that knew the thirst which has to be satisfied if a man is to survive. And so hunger is a desire for something. Thirst is a craving for something. So as we think about what Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or they shall be satisfied. Very simple outline this morning for our message. Only two main points. The unhealthy appetite that we want to look at briefly for a moment. The unhealthy appetite and then the healthy appetite. So let's look for a moment at the unhealthy appetite. And I want to begin with uh, the, the figure, the picture, and, the, and some information about a very unusual man who lives in France. His name is Michel Lotito, Lotito. And uh, he is a man who eats metal. Uh, he has eaten 10 bicycles. Except for the pedals. He said, I don't like the pedals. The rubber is too, too tough to digest. And so he doesn't eat the pedals of a bicycle, but he does eat a bicycle. In fact, he's eaten 10 of them. 
He has eaten seven television sets. He has eaten several shopping carts. He has eaten one coffin, six chandeliers, one waterbed, and one airplane. Took him two years to eat the airplane. He has been performing professionally ever since he was 12 years old. He began at the age of 12. He said, I accidentally broke a glass in my mouth and I thought that it was only natural for me to eat it. And so he began eating it. He began showing off for his friends and soon made a name for himself. His parents found out only after they saw him on a local television program eating some metal. Well, he told his mother he was only making it look like he was actually eating it, but that he really wasn't. But when she found out he really had done that, she fell ill for eight days. He has two sets of veins, two pulses, a double thickness of the cell walls. His stomach lining is very tough. His great-grandfather had a double spinal column. And after he has eaten a major item, like a television set, he eats five or six steaks at a time to put his body into a hyperdigestive state. The Guinness's Book of World Records honored him as the world's greatest omnivore. He ate the award. <laughs> but he's not the only one who has feasted upon unusual appetites. There is a man in the Bible who also had an unusual appetite. And I want to take just a moment or so to share some thoughts with you about him. So take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn to the Gospel of Luke. The 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells three stories, three parables. One, of course, about the lost sheep. The second one about the lost coin. And the third about the lost son, commonly known as the prodigal son. The word prodigal means wasteful. And here's the story about a young man who went to his father and demanded that he be given his portion of the inheritance. And uh, so he took his portion of the inheritance, went off into a far country and wasted his inheritance. And so that's why he's called the prodigal son. He wasted his inheritance. He wasted his life. Look at it with me, please. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now this is prior to the father's death. It was uh, not supposed to have been done until the father died. And yet here he is wanting his portion of the estate and his portion of the inheritance now. He doesn't want to wait until his father dies. He wants it now. And so the father, for whatever reason, decides to do so. And so he divided his wealth between them, between both sons. Then notice in verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. Now, if you have the King James Version of the Bible in verse 13, the word distance is translated far, F-A-R. So he went into a far country or he went into a distant country. I like to compare it to he was probably a country boy living on the farm. So he, the lure of the big city and the bright lights and all that it had to offer lured him there. And so he left the farm 
to go to the big city where the bright lights and the seemingly good times, it's the far country there that he went. And actually, it was not only far in distance as far as uh, uh, the length of it was from his home, it was a far distance from his heavenly father as well, which was more important. Notice in verse 14, now when he had spent everything, and literally did everything. I mean, whatever the amount of the inheritance was, it didn't take him long to go through the whole thing. I mean, I visualize him as having a great time. He's enjoying life, so he thinks. And as long as he has the money to throw a party or to spend it on somebody else, he's got friends gathered all around him. But it doesn't take him long to run out of money. And when he runs out of money, he runs out of friends. So it says in verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. He was poor, destitute. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine, that is the owner did, to feed swine. Now this would be an insulting vocation for him because assuming that our Lord being a Jew and he was speaking to Jews, that this young man was a Jew. And there's nothing I understand that is more repulsive to a Jew than pork, uh, than a pig or a hog. And yet here is a young man who is so destitute and so hungry to have something to eat, he's on the verge of starvation, that he is willing to do whatever it takes to survive, even if it means feeding the swine, And in verse 16, it says, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods, P-O-D-S, the King James Version uses the word husk, that he would have fed himself with the husk, the same ones that he was giving to the pigs. And no one, it says in verse 16, no one was giving anything to him. I mean, he had nobody. They all deserted him, left him on his own. Here he is in the big city, All the pleasures are gone, all the money is gone, all the friends are gone. He's starving to death and so he eats the husk, the pods that he was feeding the swine in order to to, to survive. But then notice in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough to eat, more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go to the Father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And of course, you know the rest of the story. When he goes there, the Father sees him coming and he runs down, greets him, falls upon him, hugs him, smothers him with kisses, gives the instructions to his servants, go kill the fatted calf, let's have a barbecue, let's have a great time, go get the robe and put it on him, rings on his fingers, shoes on his feet, This is my son who was lost and he's been found. He was dead and now he is alive. And they rejoiced. Jesus was telling all three of these stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son to talk about the joy that is in heaven over one sinner who is found by the father and the father rejoices in the presence of the angels. But here is a young man who went and wasted his life, wasted his inheritance because he had an unhealthy appetite. I mean, he was starving to death. He was willing to eat. You know, sometimes people who are starving to death, if you don't have to go into a big city to see this, you can see it right here in our own town when people sometimes raid the garbage dump or the the garbage bin there, the trash bin that's in your, uh, you know, the back door of the the cafe or cafeteria or whatever it may be. They're, They're hungry. 
And when they're that hungry that, uh, I mean, you're, you're starving to death, uh, it's amazing what you will do uh, in order to survive. And so this young man is an illustration of an individual who had the wrong kind of appetite. So there are three basic uh, 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 things that I want to share with you about an unhealthy attitude, uh, uh, apt appetite, excuse me, an unhealthy appetite that a lot of people in the world think that uh, is, is, will bring them satisfaction, but it will not. So the first uh, false satisfaction is to realize that satisfaction is not found in pleasure. It is not found in pleasure. Billy Graham has a book on the Beatitudes, and on this part of the Beatitudes he says, Our souls can never subside on the husk of this pleasant-seeking world. Many of us have no appetite for spiritual things because we are absorbed in the sinful pleasures of this world. We have been eating too many of the devil's delicacies, and indeed we have. You have on your outline a verse of scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1 and verse 8. The New Living Translation renders verse 8 as, No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Now, remember that the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, until I started studying the book of Ecclesiastes some time ago, it, it to me was one of the most depressing, discouraging books of the entire Bible. And, and, and it is until you realize that Solomon is writing this book from the view, viewpoint of a person who is living his life without God. You'll find repeated throughout the book, vanity of vanity is all is vanity under the sun. Vanity of vanity. And that's just what he's saying. When you choose to live your life and you have no room in your life for God, no matter what pleasures you may follow, no matter what, what, whatever you do, there is no fulfillment, there is no satisfaction uh, in, in a life that you live without God, without God. James talked about this over in his epistle. Where he says, go to now you that say today and tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city and we'll buy and trade and sell and do these things. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow will have for you. For what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a little while and then it's, it's vanished, it's gone. Rather, he said, you should say, if God wills, we will do this and that and go here and there. I'm paraphrasing it here. But again, James was also referring to a life that one lives without including God. You've got your plans all laid out. You're going to do this. Tomorrow you're going to go there and do the other thing. You've got everything laid out. The only thing that's missing is God. You live your life without God and you're going to end up realizing only too late if you don't wake up that life without God is meaningless and it is empty and it is vain. Notice also on your outline a verse of scripture from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25. This is a reference to Moses. Moses, you remember, grew up as the adoptive daughter of Pharaoh's, uh, adoptive son to Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, he was, uh, I'm assuming, it doesn't say in the scriptures, but probably had he remained there in Egypt, uh, he would, could have been the very Pharaoh of Egypt someday. He had the best education and everything that he wanted. It was all his. And yet it says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25 uh, that he, he left and denied his inheritance, left uh, Pharaoh, left Egypt, uh, and, and chose to go with the Lord's people, realizing the passing pleasures of sin. 
Notice the expression, the passing pleasures of sin. You know, folks, uh, well, you do know. <laughs> you know, there is, there, there is pleasure in sin for a while. I mean, you can have a good time sinning. I mean, if that were not true, then people wouldn't do it. It, it really is. But notice what it says in the scriptures. It is for a season. Every kick, as we've heard it said, has a kick back. Yeah, there is pleasure for a while if you abuse drugs, but eventually it's going to catch up with you and you're going to regret it. It has its kickback. Yes, you can only go around life once, so therefore get all the gusto you can, drink all the booze, and I can imagine that's what's going on last night and tonight in New Jersey over the Super Bowl. All of the booze and the beer that's being guzzled down, uh, it's a fun time. They're going to have a happy time in the big city tonight and even here or wherever there's a Super Bowl party for some people. It will be a great time for a season because it, every kick has its kick back. And so it says there is the passing pleasures. It passes. It doesn't last. The passing pleasures of sin. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but it will all soon pass away because life itself is short. It is short. When you look at the scriptures, uh, the Bible describes life as very, very short. It, it, uh, I've already referred to the vapor that James talked about. He said, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little while and, and then it's gone. Uh, the Bible also describes uh, life as uh, lasting no longer than what's called a hand breath. A hand breath is the, the width of your hand from the bottom to the top or top to the bottom, about two and a half, three inches, four inches maybe at most. Not very much the width of your hand. And the Bible is saying that's the, the, the length of your life. It's very short. Oh, you say, well, I'm going to live to be 80. Well, you don't know that you will. You hope you, hopefully you will. Or you'll live to be 90. Some people even live past 100. That's great. And we think, man, 100 years old, that's, that's a long time. But really it's not. When you compare it to eternity, it's not what we call a drop in the bucket. It's just a very, very short time if you live to be over 100. It's a very brief time. And the prodigal son realized this. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jeremiah, Old Testament book of Jeremiah. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 12 and verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Well, that's a question that mankind has asked since day one. Why is it that the wicked prosper? Why is it that those who do evil, who sin, seem to be getting by with that? Well, you know, the psalmist asked the same question over in Psalms chapter 73. Listen to what the psalmist had to say in verses 12 and 13. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Well, the psalmist was saying the same thing that Jeremiah was saying. You look around you. 
Ah, the, the wealthy seem to be prospering. Those who are evil, those who are sinful, those who live their lives without God, man, they've got it made. They're the multimillionaires, the billionaires nowadays. And he says, you just look around you and where's all the justice? Where's all the fairness in all of this? There is none. But then if you look at Job chapter 21 and verse 13, don't turn to it because we'll be gone by the time you get there. Just write it down. Job 21, 13. They spent their days in prosperity and suddenly they go down to Sheol. They spent their days, they lived their lives in prosperity and then suddenly they go down to Sheol. Sheol is another term for death. They die. They die. And how much do they leave when they die? They leave it all. They leave it all. So satisfaction is not found in pleasure. Secondly, satisfaction is not found in performance. There is a myth that says success produces satisfaction. But that's not true. Many who are climbing the ladder of success find out too late that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. What is success? Someone said that success is a toy balloon among a room full of children holding pins. Ecclesiastes 4.8 from the Good News Translation or paraphrase says, man is always working, never satisfied with the wealth he has. Again, remember coming from the book of Ecclesiastes, he's talking about an individual who is successful, but he's not included God in his life. And he's always working. He's never satisfied with the wealth that he has. Someone once asked, I believe a reporter did, the late John D. Rockefeller, how much money would it take for him to be totally satisfied? And his answer was just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The first uh, billionaire in the world was John D. Rockefeller, and yet he realized that uh, it, it wasn't uh, completely satisfying. So Ecclesiastes 2.21 from the Good News Paraphrase, you work for something with all of your wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then you have to leave it to someone who hasn't had to work for it. You ever thought about that? It's called a will. Hopefully you've got a will. And all the hard work that you do, the skills, the efforts, the education, the training, the expertise that you exercise putting into it, and when you die, what's going to happen to it? You're not going to take it with you. Unless you're like the, young, the, the man who, who realized that he was dying, he was very wealthy. He told his wife to take all of his money and put it in a bucket and put it in the attic. And when he passed through at his death, he'd just pick it up and take it with him. Well, he died. And one day she got to thinking, you know, that bucket's still up in the attic. Maybe. So she's going to go up there and see. So she goes up there and sure enough, there was his bucket with all his worldly possessions in it. She said, hmm, I should have put it in the, in the basement. Satisfaction is not found in pleasure. It's not found in performances. Thirdly, satisfaction is not found in possessions. Not found in possessions. Someone has said, before you set your heart on something, look around to see if those who have the same thing you're wanting to get are happy. Not bad advice. Whatever it is your goal is in life, whatever you're striving to do, look around and see. Find somebody that, that already has what you're striving for and ask yourself, are they happy? Are they satisfied? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11, those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. 
The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what is the advantage of wealth except perhaps to watch it run through your fingers? Some companies have on the labels of their product satisfaction guaranteed. Well, the world may do that, but uh, it won't last. Howard Hughes at one time was one of the wealthiest men of his day. Someone asked Howard Hughes if he was happy. He replied, no, not really. Not really. So let's spend a few moments now looking, if you would please, at the healthy appetite. The healthy appetite. So if you would please uh, look on your outline, there are three or four things there about a healthy appetite. First of all, it should be a proper hunger. A proper hunger. And the proper hunger is to hunger for righteousness. This is what the Beatitude says. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after what? Ha righteousness. Righteousness. Now, righteousness is not something that you do. Righteousness is a person. The Lord Jesus. So if you seek after righteousness, as Jesus describes it here, what you're seeking after is himself, the Lord Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Christ, for they shall be filled. How do I know that he is righteous? Because the Bible tells me so. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Paul is saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he himself literally became righteousness for us. So if I want to have a proper appetite and to have a proper hunger and thirst, then thirst and hunger for Jesus, long for him. Have a hunger for him. The deepest need of your, of your life is to have a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the proper hunger. The second thing is a preeminent hunger. A preeminent hunger. You know what it is to be hungry naturally. You need to know what it is to be hungry supernaturally. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. So get your priorities straight. Put Jesus first. Someone once said, how do you spell joy? J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. We reverse that. Ourselves first, and maybe we have room left for others. And if we've got anything left over, then, then, then God or Jesus. But if you want joy, real joy, everlasting joy, you put Jesus first in your life. Food and water. Food and water are necessities, not luxuries. And righteousness is a necessity, not a luxury. And it should be at the top of your list, of your bucket list. Seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness. And if you put God first, what does he say in Matthew 6, 33? Then all of these other things will fall in, as I paraphrase it. You put Jesus first, seek his kingdom first, then all of these other things will fall into their proper perspective. They'll all line up the way they'll put Jesus first, God first, his righteousness first, his kingdom first. Let God be numero uno in your life. And then all of these other things will fall right into place. A proper hunger, a preeminent hunger, a passionate hunger, a passionate hunger. 
In Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me. How? With all your heart. With all your heart. So put all that you have into the searching for Jesus. If you will search him genuinely, sincerely, honestly, and do it with passion, continuously searching him, you will find him. You will. There was a little girl who had gone to bed, but she kept asking for a glass of water. Mama, will you bring me a glass of water to drink? And the mother just kept saying, go to sleep, go to sleep. And she just kept on, Mama, bring me a glass of water to drink. Finally, the mother said, if you ask for water one more time, I'm going to spank you. There was silence for what it seemed like a long time. And finally, the little girl said, Mama, when you get up to spank me, will you bring me a glass of water? <laughs> she was willing to pay whatever it price it was in order to get a drink of water. And that's the way it ought to be with our righteousness, our thirst, our hunger for righteousness sake. It's a proper hunger, a preeminent hunger, a passionate hunger, a perpetual hunger, a perpetual hunger. Matthew chapter five and verse six, if you notice on your outline, I've got the word weast, W-U-E-S-T. That's the name of a man, his last name. He was a theologian, a Greek scholar who translated the New Testament. And this is his translation of Matthew 5, 6, Kenneth Wiest. Spiritually prosperous are those hungering and thirsting for righteousness sake. And the reason why I put that, notice the word hunger. It's hungering, thirsting. Those words hungering and thirsting speak of an ongoing process. It's not just something that you do once in a while, ever so often. It is a habit with you. It is a constant thing with you. You are constantly ongoing, hungering and thirsting for the Lord. It refers to an ongoing desire. You know, on Thanksgiving Day, it wasn't too long ago that we celebrated Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving Day, you know, more food is consumed perhaps on that day in America than any other day of the year. And... Uh, you sit down at the table and boy, you've got a, a feast laid before you and you eat and you eat and you eat and you eat and you stuff and stuff and stuff yourself, stuff yourself. Boy, when you get through, you have to belt out a little bit and say, man, I'm just stuffed. I'm just stuffed. And six hours later, what are you doing? You got your head stuck in the refrigerator <laughs> trying to find the leftovers. You're still hungry, still hungry. When you meet Jesus, you will be completely satisfied, continually satisfied, and certainly satisfied. Notice the words he says in the Beatitude, you shall be filled. There is in Greek mythology a story about a king by the name of Tantalus, King Tantalus. He, he offended the gods in the Greek mythological stories and so as his punishment, King Tantalus was placed in a lake where the water reached his chin. But every time he bent his head to get a drink of water, the water would recede. There was fruit in a tree branch, on a tree branch, hanging above him. But every time he reached up for it, the fruit would draw away and pull away from it. So he never could find anything to eat, never could reach anything to eat, and never could get... To the water to drink. Tantalus became the symbol for teasing, and his name is the root of our verb tantalize, to tease. 
Folks, God will never tease you. He will never tantalize you. God is not in the business to tease you. The promise that he gives in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 is a promise. It's a promise. You can take it to the bank. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. God has said so. I believe it. Now Jesus taught this principle in the parable of the householder recorded in Luke chapter 5. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and beginning with verse 5. Luke 5 and verse 5. And he tells this story, Jesus does, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 5. Suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I've nothing to set before him. And from inside the, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in the bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. He just kept knocking on the door. He just kept pleading, open the door and, and, and give me some bread. I've, I've got to feed my guest. But then notice, after all of that, he said, the man, he doesn't get up because he's his friend. He gets up because he's persistent. He just won't quit knocking. He won't keep, keep pleading and asking. And so he gets up and he opens the door and he gives the man the bread he wants. But then notice in verse 9, so I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. He's talking about persistence here. Just keep asking. Just keep knocking. Just keep calling upon God has promised he will answer, and he will provide. He will provide. Now, my time is up, but I want to close with an illustration that comes out of the Old Testament. The Old Testament book of 1 Kings, and I'll be through. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 10, you have the story of uh, the Queen of Sheba coming to visit King Solomon because uh, she has heard that he is the wisest man who has ever lived and that he is the wealthiest man who has ever lived. And so in 1 Kings, chapter 10, listen to what it says. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with different questions. So she came to Jerusalem with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. And she had a lot of questions in her heart. Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. When the king, queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. What that means is she was just awestruck. She was just overwhelmed by what she heard and by what she saw. She just was, was breathtaking. It was just, it, she just couldn't believe what she had heard and seen. Verse 6, 
Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I have heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. But there's one final verse I want to point out to you. Look down at verse 13. 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 13. King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire which she requested. I take that as a picture of God's generosity toward us. And his ability to provide any and every need that you have. She looked at what God had done for Solomon and she said half of it has been told me. Your people are blessed. And Solomon turns around. Everything she requested. He granted. Don't you think God would do that for you? If your ways please the Lord, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, your cup will overflow. Let's bow together. Father, it's just uh, beyond our comprehension to think about what your storehouse has in stock for us. And I wonder, Lord, sometimes when I and all the rest of us get to heaven and, and that storehouse there that we have the privilege of looking into and we'll wonder, well, what are all of these blessings doing in here? And the answer may very well be, well, there were blessings that had belonged to you, but you never, never received them. You never asked for them. Oh, my. You're so rich in wisdom and love and grace compassion, forgiveness. And here we are destitute, dying of hunger and thirst, oh, not for material things, but for righteousness. May we do as the prodigal did, coming to his senses, he gets up and he goes to his father in a repentant spirit and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. May we have that same attitude. May we humble ourselves before you because it says also in the Beatitudes that we are blessed if we are poor in spirit. If we have a spirit of humility before you and bow before you and confess our spiritual poverty. But oh, if we would only hunger and thirst after righteousness, we would find our cups overflowing for you shall fill them to full satisfaction. And as we turn now to this time of invitation, perhaps there's someone here today whose cup is completely empty. They've never held it under the fountain of living water. And they've never embraced you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will perform the work of conversion and regeneration, that as they come to you in repentance, that they would find complete satisfaction in you. And if there are those of us here today who do know you, and yet we've been walking the way of the world like Demas of old, having loved this present world to turn away from you, oh God, bring us back. In a repentant spirit, may we call upon you. Fill us, Lord. 
Fill us until we want no more. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if God is speaking to you today, you come.